Welcome to the Lost Showman Heroes podcast. My name is Matthew. And my name is Matteo. And together we're diving deep into the history of Rome from its founding to its death, uncovering Rome's greatest heroes along the way and ranking them. So, let's get going, Matteo. Yep. The last two episodes have been consumed, actually the last three episodes, have been consumed by Marius and Sulla. But... In one of these episodes, we mention the name of Quintus Sertorius. He's our subject for episode 17. So today, we're going to dig deep in Quintus Sertorius, and we're going to see some familiar characters. But this story is really unique and new. It's a lost gem, Mateo. I think you're going to love this guy. All right. Can't wait to delve in and talk about Quintus Sertorius. He is a real lost Roman hero, Matteo. But was he a hero? Or was he a lost Roman villain? Well, we'll figure that out at the end of the episode. Jedi or Sith? We'll see. Okay, we'll see. Anyways, I'm going to give you one tiny little hint, not to spoil it. But this guy is known in history as the Braveheart of Hispania. Okay, so kind of like a, kind of like a Spartacus figure almost. Kind of, and funny that you say that because Spartacus is coming very, very soon. But before we get started, Mateo, I wanted to answer a question that you posed last episode. You asked me if when Marius Jr. committed suicide in Prinesta, remember he was he had lost to Sula, yep. he fled to a fortress, Sula besieged the fortress, and he committed suicide? Yep. You wanted to know if that was the end of the Marian line, and it looks like the answer is yes. There is a man in history known as Pseudo-Marius who showed up in 51 BC, many years later, who claimed to be Marius's grandson. Uh, and uh, when Julius Caesar was killed in 41 BC, the Pseudo-Marius tried to stir up the crowd and sort of step into Julius Caesar's shoes. But that guy was probably an imposter. So the reality is that this was the end of Marius's, Marius's line. Man, that sucks. Yeah, it is. But he also wasn't a deep, noble line, so... No, it was not. No, he was definitely a pleb. He was a novus homo, and that was part of the issue that he always faced. Uh, so, where are we at the beginning of this episode, Matteo? Let's orient ourselves on the map and in time. Uh, it's blocking the microphone. Oh, it's not. It's it is. No, it's blocking it. Uh, we're in the town of Nursia, Mateo, which is modern Norcia. That's near Perugia and Umbria. Okay. And that is where Sertorius was born in 126 BC. Now, Sertorius, at the time Sertorius was born, Sulla was 12 years old and Marius is 32 years old, just to kind of put it into perspective. Power in the region. Um Think massive temples and mix of Greek and Egyptian vibes under Ptolemy the seventh. That's an eight. Uh, the eighth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Over in the Americas, the scene was just as dynamic with cultures like the Nazca in present-day Peru, drawing drawing those huge mysterious lines in the desert. And in China, the Han Dynasty was going full throttle, expanding big and upping their game in arts and science. Excellent. Very interesting stuff. So let's dive in now to our specific history, Mateo, and we know where we are. Because, again, for the last three episodes, we've basically been here. 
knee deep in the Roman Civil War. Right. We had the populists with guys like Gracchus, Marius, and Cinna, and we had the optimists. Uh, optimists, sorry, which was the senatorial faction, wh- whose most notable member was Sulla, and we just spent two episodes on Sulla. Right. Matteo, the Republic is disintegrating. Yeah, it's been diminished, and it's it's going to keep going until it withers out finally, and there's no there's no stopping it now. There's no stopping this. It's like a train going downhill. Yeah. There's no stopping it. And to our listeners, I know it feels like we've spent a lot of time here, and, and we have, but it's so worth it. And you're about to see this same series of events that we've talked about for a couple episodes now from a very different, cool, new perspective. So a little background now on Sertorius. As we said, he's not from Rome. He was born, Matteo, in an old Sabine city. I know you remember the Sabines. Of course. I mean, we've only talked about them every episode since the beginning of the Uh-huh, practice. but no, we have not. No, the Sabines oh, is the, the rape of the Sabines. We've been talking oh. about the Samnites. <laughs> yeah, the rape of the Sabines was yeah. the first episode. Yeah, Sabines were one of the very early tribes to go over to the Roman side. Remember, the Sabine king and Romulus became co-kings of this new territory. So, the city that he was born in is was called Nerdshia. He was born into a good family, Matteo, but his father died when he was very young. Uh, and he was raised by his w- widowed mother, Rhea. She gave him an excellent education. She was super involved with her son because he was an only child. And the family had some connections in Rome. Even though the family... So, although you said he was like kind of, kind of from the same camp as Marius... Yes. He was still a little different, though, because it seems like he received a bit of a better up- upbringing. Uh, I think Marius sold himself as man of the people, but he was actually came from a similar family. He had some um, connections in the capital. and But he just wasn't a senator class. He was, and nor was uh, Sertorius. Sertorius belonged to the equities, so he was the knight class. That's correct, equestrian class. In his mid-teens, he moved to Rome to make his way in the world, and the first step for a young aspiring man when they arrived in Rome was to become an orator or an administrator. And how good was this guy at oratory? Well, we have a quote from Cicero, the famous Roman politician, who was much younger than Sertorius, so he didn't know Sertorius as a young boy when he first got to the capital. But this is what Cicero said about Sertorius's oratory. Of all the totally illiterate and crude orators, well, actually ranters, I ever knew, and I might as well add, completely coarse and rustic, the roughest and readiest was Q. Sertorius. So he was the worst of the worst. According to Cicero, who sounds like he was being a mega snob. I personally think, and you'll draw your own conclusions, Sertorius must have had real talent, both with words and with actions, because, well, just hang in there and wait and see what it is he went on to accomplish. All right. However, before continuing, let's take a look at the man himself, and for our listeners, if you go to www.lostromanheroes.com, you'll find a bust of Sertorius. Matteo, what do you see? Well, he seems like every other noble, every other Roman we've ever seen so far. Right. They all have the same freaking haircut. They all have the same like freaking look on them. Like it's actually getting hella boring. Oh, they all look the same. Okay, fair enough. Let's let's keep moving on. So the curtain really rises, Matteo, on Sertorius in 105 BC. Okay, so Can I just say, buckle up, buckle up. This buckle. is. Are you buckled? Yep. Okay. I'm buckled. 
105 BC, he's 21 years old, Mateo, and he's at the Battle of Arauzio. And I'm going to remind you what that battle was. This was the consul Quintus Servilius Capio. And he was one of two generals that the Senate sent north to stop the Cimbrians' migration south. The other guy was Gnaeus Malleus Maximus. He was a novus homo. And Capio was a patrician. Right. And Capio, the patrician, you may recall, refused to come to the help of his co-general, co-consul Malleus, because Malleus was a pleb. And the army got crushed. And the army got beyond crushed, got wiped out on the banks of the Rhone. A handful of people survived, and one of them was Sertorius. So he's a lucky guy. Super lucky guy. Must have had an angel or something, I don't know. But listen to this. According to Plutarch, in the battle... Sertorius had lost his horse and had been wounded in the body. And he plunged into the Rhone and made his way across the river, swimming, shield and breastplate and all, against a strongly adverse current. So sturdy was his body and so inured to hardships by training. Most people would have drowned, like, what's his name? Like, For sure. Antony. <laughs> yeah. You know, he didn't actually drown. But Absolutely. Like Most people in heavy armor, swimming across... A wide, swiftly moving river would have drowned for sure. That's pretty hard. I'm not gonna lie. Hardcore. Yeah. And so, by the one little tiny postscript on that m- massive defeat at the Arausio. So this guy Capio, the patrician consul, he survived Matteo, and he made his way back to Rome. A move he would soon regret. Why? Because this is what happened to him when he got back to Rome. He was kicked out of the Senate. He was put on trial for the loss of his army, convicted, stripped of his citizenship, and then, and I love this part, forbidden fire or water within 800 miles of Rome. In Latin, interdicere aquae et ignis. That meant no fire or water means you have no life. You cannot be within 800 miles of Rome. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. That's like most capital punishment yeah. you could ever get. And in addition, he was fined about 825,000 pounds of gold, which is more than the entire Roman treasury. And he was forbidden to see or speak to his friends or family. Like, oh, my God. They were he not... blacklisted him from yeah. society. Yeah, not messing around. They were not happy about his behavior at Arausio. I mean, who would be? So, anyways, Sertorius survived. And he appears shortly afterwards again, Matteo, in the historical record under the command of none other than Marius. Marius, who is now consul. And remember, this is Marius. His powers were just peaking as Rome's like greatest hero. And Marius somehow, he, he could recognize talent. And when he looked at Sertorius, he saw talent. And this is at a time, remember, when Sir, uh, Marius was starting to spar with these these uh, northern tribes, and trying to understand his enemies better, Matteo, he sent Sertorius on an undercover mission to the camp of the Chimbrians. That's pretty risky. Undercover mission. It's that, that's oh, he's like a first. He's like a spy. Spies been around yeah. for a long time. But we haven't seen anything like this in in any of the history we've studied so far. So Sertorius said, "Okay, boss, I'll do it." Took off his armor. And according to Plutarch, putting on a Celtic dress and acquiring the commonest expressions of that language for such conversation as might be necessary, probably like, hola, but you know, so you got some basic words going, he mingled with the barbarians, and after seeing or hearing what was of importance, 
he came back to Marius and reported everything that he saw. That's pretty amazing. Crazy, I don't know right? if he actually did that, but crazy. if he did, that's ridiculous. It's nuts. No one that we've seen would have the balls to do that. No way. Jeez. And Marius gave him an award for valor, moved him up the ranks, and this guy, at 21 years old, is off to a pretty decent start. I thought he didn't like Marius, though. Ah, we're going to get there. Right now, he's just a 21-year-old dude. The consul general takes you under his wing and says, I need you to do something super risky. You do whatever. And you do whatever, and he saw an opportunity there. He took it, and it panned out for him. So we saw this war already, and we know that Marius defeated the Chimbri and the Teutons, and afterwards, Sertorius was sent Mateo as a military tribune to Hispania. Right. So this is his first big step up. And he got stationed in a place called Castulo, which was, wait for it. <laughs> I'm waiting. A Celtiberian city. You came full circle. We are back to the Celtiberians, yeah. And I'm not going to make any jokes about tapas. Tapas? Yeah, because they're in Hispania. Oh. The Celtiberians. Okay. You know, maybe they liked eating tapas. I actually don't even know what that is. Tapas, they're very small dishes. Like the tiny oh. little bite-sized oh. things of like oh. a little bit of sausage, a yeah, yeah. little jamón serrano on top of a piece of bread. Jamón serrano, the best ham in the world. It's no, it's not. Prosciutto is the best ham in the world. Well, yeah, but I don't know why everyone says that, though. Like yeah. Every person I ever talked to is like, I'm not, anyways, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Mateo, he's stationed there in Castulo. He's in charge of the Roman forces in the Celtiberian city, but there was trouble. Because when he got there, these soldiers had been there for a long time, the Roman soldiers, and they had completely lost discipline. They were eating tapas, they were drinking sangria, they were abusing the locals, they were living oh, that's nice. they were living large. It was a comfy little world. And the Celtiberians, as you could imagine, hated these the occupying forces. They were a bunch of drunks. And so this is what they did. They called a neighboring tribe called the Oritanians and said, Guys, please come to our town and help us get rid of these Romans. They suck. And the Oritanians obliged. One night, Mateo, a force of Oritanian soldiers entered the town. The city gates were unguarded because, again, these guys had completely lost discipline. And they fell upon the Roman troops that were sleeping in their barracks and started massacring them. During the attack, somehow, again, Sertorius managed to, manages to slip out of the city and he gathered up Roman soldiers that had fled the city, organized them, came back to the city, entered through the city gates, and he posted a guard this time so that no one could, could enter or exit. And then he fell upon the Oritanians and the Celtiberians, killing all of the men capable of holding a sword. Okay, well, I don't understand. How, how long was he there for by the time this happened? I think he had, like, just arrived because when this went why down. Wouldn't he have just, like, why wouldn't he have whipped them into shape? It, it's so a, go, it's a good point. It's a very good point. I think he had just arrived when this happened. Hmm. So pretty good, right? Yeah. But it gets better. After the battle... Okay, so imagine this, Matteo. The, they literally just killed the last guy resisting. And Sertorius told his men to take off their armor. Oh, no, he's not going to do this again. He, he, take off your armor and put on the clothing of the Oritanians. And then they slipped out of the city, Mateo, that same night. 
and they went to the town of the Oritanians, pretending to be the returning Oritanian troops. Out comes a welcoming party from the town, and Sertorius falls upon them, kills them, enters the open city gates of the Oritanian city, and the city surrendered. Sertorius... He did it twice. ...sold them into slavery. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Always God love when they do that. Yeah. And, and that, Mateo, was Sertorius's first command. So, success. I it would seems say like so. he's just surrounded by a bunch of incompetent losers. He's just trying to, like... He's like uh, babysitting them almost. Hmm. But he somehow... He did the spy maneuvers again. He I did don't know the, how that works. He did. I don't know, I don't know either. He's uh, an army of completely... I mean, all these freaking Roman guys look the same with their short little haircuts. So <laughs> I don't know if they didn't even freaking realize that. <laughs> so news is starting to spread about this young dude who's accomplished some remarkable things in a very short period of time at a young age. So by 91 BC, Sertorius is back in Rome and he's elected Caester and he is aligned to Cisalpine Gaul. Right. And in Cisalpine Gaul, Matteo, this is now on the, on, we're talking about the eve of the social wars. He's put in charge of finance and leading troops. You and I talked about this before. We weren't certain about the role of Caester. Was it just a finance role? No. When you were outside of the city of Rome, when you were a Caester, you could have, you had military responsibilities as well as responsibilities for the purse. We don't know a lot about what he did when he was there, but Plutarch says that he also led men in battle. And he always led from the front. He wasn't one of these guys directing things from the back. He was right there in the front line. And in fact, Matteo, he lost an eye in some battle in the social war. Really? And I, I love this quote from Plutarch. Plutarch says that Sertorius didn't just give up the activities of being a daring soldier after he had advanced to the dignity of a commander, but he displayed astonishing deeds of prowess and he exposed his person unsparingly in battle, in consequence of which he got a blow that cost him one of his eyes. But this is the best part, Matteo. Listen to this. But on this fact, the fact that he lost an eye, he actually prided himself at all times. Others, he said, could not always carry about with them the evidences of their brave deeds, but they had to lay aside their necklaces and spears and wreaths. In his own case, on the contrary, the marks of his bravery remained with him, and when men saw what he had lost, they saw at the same time a proof of his valor. I mean, that's true. You can't, you can't argue. You can't say like all these other freaking senators that have their one year when they turn consul to, for glory. They take off their rings and necklaces and stuff. This guy's been doing it. He's, He's been, been doing it. it out. And it was right there on the front of his face. And he started going around with an eye patch and he wore it with pride. And to, speak, uh, for, uh, to spook people out, he probably lifted it in front of his face. <laughs> You're probably right. He probably did. Yeah, he probably did. So this is that's Sertorius in the social war. And now, Matteo, we're on the eve of the civil war. People are choosing sides, Matteo, whether you want to or not. And Sertorius at this point was massively popular after the social war. As the people in particular loved this guy. So he stood for election, Matteo, as a tribune of the plebs, because he was a pleb, not a patrician. He was a novus homo, and he was defeated. How could he be defeated if the people loved him? You're not going to like this. He was defeated because Sulla organized opposition against him. Mm. Yeah. 
why would Sula have done that? Well, because he probably thought Sartorius was in Marius's was in leagues with Marius, right? That's exactly why, Matteo. He assumed that because Sertorius served under Marius with, with distinction that he was in Marius's camp. Regardless of that, Matteo, around 90 BC now, Sertorius was admitted to the Senate. Really? Novus homo made good. A made man. He, yeah. He was made like in the mafia. And uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, like when I saw that, I was surprised. Like, how did he get in? Was he voted? Like, I didn't really understand the process for getting into the Senate, other than if you were senatorial class and you were by birth. Right? It's actually not. It's if you were a magistrate, Matteo, mm-hmm. then you were, after your term ended as magistrate, you were admitted to the Senate. Mm. So magistrate means you were either a consul, a tribune, a praetor, a censor, or an adile. And, well, he probably wasn't a tribune since he wasn't a senator, right? No, he he was he was a praetor. And so when when his when his term was up, he was able to he served he was he entered the Senate. Just as the Civil War is heating up, and we know what comes next to our listeners, apologies, we've talked about this a lot, but very quickly, in eighty eight BC, Sulla marches on Rome. Because Marius and Sulpicius had been they were in the midst of the Marius's first reign of terror, right? And his whole slaughter. The wholesale slaughter, Sulla barely escaped with his life. Went to the Adriatic, got his troops, came back, booted Marius out. Marius flees to Africa. Sulpicius is killed. And then when Sulla thought that he had the city and the Senate stabilized, he left for the east to go fight Mithridates. Talked about that last episode. Right. But as soon as Sulla left, violence erupted again between the two consuls. Remember Sulla had had organized the election of two consuls, Octavius, who was more the party of the Senate, and Cinna, which was the Popularis. I do remember. And vi- we haven't talked about this much, but as soon as Sulla left, the bloodbath began again. And Sertorius Matteo aligned himself with Cinna. Well, yeah, because you can't really blame the guy, because Sulla had had it out for him earlier, you know? He wasn't just going to side with him. And Sulla had added out for the plebs. And he was point. a pleb. Yeah. You're right. And, and you know what's interesting, Mateo? Like, there's a, I have a tendency. Whenever I start research for this, for a podcast episode, I start in Wikipedia. And if you read Wikipedia about Sortorius, it says that he went with Cinna because Cinna was part of the Marian group and he just wanted to be Marian. Right. But then I went deeper. You're going to be proud of me. Uh, I am. I, I, <laughs> Petrarch wrote a life of Sertorius and Petrarch says one of the key reasons that Sertorius went with uh, went with Octavius is that uh, sorry with Cinna is that he just didn't respect Octavius because he said Octavius was rather sluggish who's Octavius? he was one of the two consuls it was Octavius oh. and Cinna okay. and so he didn't go with Sulla's consul or the Sula's ally because he just thought that the guy was incompetent and so he went with Cinna not because he was a blind follower of Marius he just didn't have respect for the other guy and you get the sense that Sertorius was all about respect right so Sertorius goes with Cinna Matteo this means that he becomes Cinna's number two and we didn't talk about him really in the last episodes but Cinna and Sertorius raised enough Roman ex-legionnaires 
to stop the persecution of Octavius. So, so far so good. Sertorius is sort of a willing participant in this resistance to the Optimates. Right. But then something really interesting happens. Old man Marius coming back to town. He, he did come back to town, yeah. And most around him, including Cinna, were super excited that old man Marius was returning. Well, because they thought it was the return of the glory days. Yeah, but not Sertorius, Matteo. At this point, Sertorius couldn't stand Marius. Because according to Petrarch, Sertorius feared that Marius would throw everything into confusion by a passion which knew no limits and exceed the bounds of justice in the hour of victory, and that if they received Marius, he would appropriate to himself all the glory and all the power, since he found it hard to share authority and was not to be trusted. And he wasn't wrong about that. He was a thousand percent spot on. A hundred percent spot on. Yeah. And what ended up happening? Precisely what he feared. And so Sertorius complains to Cinna, saying, no, no, don't bring the old man back. And Cinna said, Cinna's the consul, you got to suck it up, buddy. So Marius arrives, and the army's divided, Matteo, into three parts. Again, we didn't talk about this last episode. One part commanded by Cinna, one part by Marius, one part by Sertorius. Together, they marched on Rome in 87 BC. We know what happens. Yep. Things get ugly. Now, Sertorius himself, Matteo, fought against and defeated an army led by Pompey Strabo. That is the father of Pompey the Great. Really? Strabo means cross-eyed. Really? So you can imagine he was a handsome guy. And you can imagine he was a great general. Well, actually, he was actually, a, he was, I think, a very good general. He was known for being incredibly bloodthirsty and vicious and brutal. But Sertorius defeats him. So Sertorius is there in Rome, and you get the sense that once he gets into the city, he's a bit of a bystander, Matteo. But what comes next, in my mind, says everything about the quality of the man that was Sertorius. Okay. Okay, this is Plutarch, again. When, basically, when the war had been brought to an end, I'm paraphrasing, Cinna and Marius were bloodthirsty and bitter, and they were in the midst of their massive rampage, kind of the, the, the bloodlust rampage right and sertorius alone as we are told neither killed anyone to gratify his anger nor waxed insolent with victory but actually rebuked marius and by private interviews with cinna he was able to make cinna more moderate and finally remember marius used uh, like a slave army yeah uh, a thug army a, a thug army and that thug army in the wake of this bloodbath, had become super powerful and rich because Marius let it happen. And partly through their lawless and violent treatment of their masters, whom they would slay and then lie with their masters' wives and outrage their masters' children. So what did Sertorius do? So, yeah. Why? Such a state of things Sertorius felt to be unendurable. And therefore, when the slaves were all encamped together, he had them shot down with javelins and they were as many as 4,000 in number. That's pretty interesting. You know, when you think of Rome at this time, it's all like factionism and stuff. Yeah. So you never really see someone work against their own faction. You know? That's so you're, pretty cool to see. It really is. It's one of the things that really struck me as well. He was willing to stand up to old man Marius and to Cinna 
when no one would to do what was right. And I guess they respected him because they didn't kill him. I guess so. Yeah, you're right. I guess they respected him because they didn't kill him. Yeah. Honorable dude. So right around there, we know Marius died. And in 83 BC, Sulla is now returning to Italy, Matteo. He's conquered Mithridates. And Sertorius at this point was a praetor. And he was asked to serve in the army, again, by the government. The Senate said, hey, Sulla's coming back. Will you serve? And Sertorius said, yeah, I will. You're the legitimate government. You asked for my service. I'll do it. Then Marius dies now. And Cinna, Matteo, remember, shortly thereafter was killed by his own troops. Right. And two new consuls were elected, Scipio and Orbanus. They were sent south to fight Sulla. Sulla defeated one and the other just ran away with his tail between his legs. And then Marius Jr. was elected consul. We talked about this last episode. In violation of law and custom. Plus, the guy had no experience. He was only 21 years old. And so Sertorius saw this situation, and this is what Plutarch says he did. There was no reason why Sertorius should stay to watch things going from bad to worse through the inferior judgment of men with superior power. Right. I mean, he didn't seem like the guy that was like super power hungry. He just wanted to chill out yeah. and do his job. But, I mean, this is too much for him. And he wasn't going to have an, um, any more of that. that. Doesn't this give you a sense? This guy feels like old Rome, doesn't he? Yeah. He reminds me of somebody, I can't put my finger on who. He reminds me of like Aragorn, just like sitting, just being quiet, just yeah. like sitting in the back. I actually, I love that reference. So to our listeners, we're talking Lord of the Rings. Aragorn is the rightful heir of... Isildur. Isildur. And uh, for him, it was not about the power. Yeah. It was about following a righteous path. So Sertorius says, you know what, you guys? You can have it. You can have the power. I'm leaving. And he left Italy, Mateo, and marched west to Hispania, where he had been appointed pro-praetor by the Marian government that now controlled the Senate. Right. Right? So he's marching through the Pyrenees, Mateo, which are the, the mountains that divide France and Spain, and horrible weather falls upon them, and they get attacked and taken by local tribes. This is just Sertorius and a small group of supporters. And if you go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, you'll see a map of Spain in the two Italian, uh, Roman provinces of Spain, Hispania in, uh, uh, Interior e Ulterior. And so what does Sertorius do when he, they're taken captive? He actually paid his captors to let him go. And some of the guys in his, his group said, what are you doing, man? You can't pay them off. That's not Roman. To which Sertorius says, hey, listen, for those that are trying to accomplish great things, time is much more valuable than gold. So I'm buying time. He moves into Spain, Mateo. Right. There's a Sulan governor there, a guy named Flaccus. Uh, and he, Sertorius takes control. He remits the taxes. So he sends back all the taxes that the Romans had been gathering from the tribes. He ended the practice of locals having to accept soldiers quartered in their homes. Instead, he starts... That's what the British did. Yeah, exactly right. That was one of the big flashpoints of, of, uh, of, of the revolution. And instead, he created tent barracks outside the cities, and he was the first guy to pitch a tent and to sleep there. Locals loved him. 
Now, knowing Sulla was going to move on Spain very quickly, Sertorius sent a force north of 6,000 men to the Pyrenees to block entrance into Spain, led by his lieutenant, a guy named Julius Salinator. Julius had the high ground, things are looking good, but he was murdered by a turncoat, which is a theme we're going to see again in this episode. So Sulla's men pour through the Pyrenees, led by a guy named Gaius Aeneas Luscus, and Sertorius was massively outnumbered, Matteo. Right. So rather than fighting a battle he knew he would lose, he fled to Mauritania. Right. By the way, remember Mauritania? We were there a f- couple episodes ago. That was the beginning of this whole arc, basically. That's exactly right. The story arc, the Jugurthine War, where Jugurtha was. So he's on the run, Matteo. Right. <clears throat> and he falls in with a group of, this is going to get better and better. Listen to this. He falls in with a group of Cilician pirates. Which is a lot like Julius Caesar, actually. You're so right. And Sertorius... And the pirates start attacking bases on the Spanish coast. And he founded his own base in the Balearic Islands. Now, Luscus, the Sulan uh, general, sent a fleet and a full legion to drive Sertorius out of the Balearic Islands, which they do. And so Sertorius and the pirates retreated to Africa. Now, once they get to Africa, things get complicated, Matteo, because the pirates were hired by the Sulan Sulan government to put a Sula puppet on the throne of a city called Ascanis. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, a guy, no, they were putting a puppet named Ascanis on the throne of a city called Tingis. Today, that's the city of Tangiers. Okay, so probably a big city at the time, you think? Yeah, I think it was a very important city at the time. It was like, a, it was a city-state. So Sertorius did not like Ascanis, because at this point, he was in opposition to Sula and the Sulan party, not because he wanted to. He sort of got pushed into it, right? Right. And so Sula, uh, Sertorius starts rallying the locals against Ascanis, and he defeated the pirates, and he defeated one of Sula's generals that was sent against him, a guy by the name of Pachanis, who had come to install Ascanis in, in, in Tangiers. And so Sula, uh, Sertorius takes control of Tangiers. And he stayed there for a while, and by all accounts... He ruled well. But while he was there, ruling well, in kind of the best setup he's had ever in his life, word comes to him from Lusitania. They were a tribe in Spain, and they were tired of the very oppressive Sulan governor. So the Lusitanians invited Sertorius back to Spain to be their wartime governor. Mateo, what would you do? Would I have gone back to Spain? Yeah, what would you have done? I mean, I was already living a comfy life, but... Super comfy life. I guess he was doing something just, you know? So, can't knock him for that. He was doing the right thing. I guess he was going to gain from it, of course. But he didn't seem like a guy that was power hungry, you know? So, I don't know. I I mean, I'm not a super brave guy like this guy, so I don't know (laughs) if I'd do the same. But I think he definitely... Uh, did the right choice probably yeah I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm in your camp I don't know if I would have left the comfy protection of the stout wall lesser men yeah, lesser men wouldn't have done what he did probably and what he did was set sail for Spain you guessed it in early 80 BC he sailed across the Straits of Gibraltar on a moonless night 
anything that happens on a moonless light, it already starts out cool, right? Mm-hmm. He defeated a small Sula naval force that was sent to defeat him, and he landed Mateo at a town called Bailo Claudia in Hispania. And if you go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, you'll see the remains of that town along the beach in south, uh, southern Spain. And you'll also see a bigger map so you can get a sense of what we're talking about here. This is in the province of Cadiz. You know, as much as I would have wanted to see like, ancient Rome and all those cities, mm-hmm. I think nothing would have been cooler than like, coastal cities. Like, you know, like little island cities in Eugene or like this. Oh, yeah. Like, awesome. uh, Mateo, what is the one we want to go see to? in... Uh, no, oh. we, we want to go see in uh, in uh, Libya. Leptis Magnus. Yeah, yeah. Those ruins are probably the coolest because I think there's nothing cooler than, like, old Hellenic, like, building styles, like, yeah. on the coast. Like, that's yeah. awesome. Leptis Magna, uh, Caesarea in, in Israel. Is Ephesus on the water? I don't think so. I don't know. And we saw, when we were in Sicily, we saw some cool ruins on, right. uh, on the sea. There's nothing cooler, like, um, where did we go again? What's uh, Delos? Delos. Uh, Delos was on mind-blowing. Awesome. Imagine yeah. that, that little, just that little town, if it was in perfect condition. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. I could not agree with you more. All right. So this guy's in Hispania, Mateo, and he started organizing an army right away because he knew he had very little time. Listen to this carefully because this is crazy. This is the force that he had at his disposal. 2,600 Roman soldiers, 700 Libyans, 4,000 Lusitanian targeteers. What is a targeteer? Infantry, maybe? I don't know. A targeteer? I assume it's probably some sort of skirmisher. I guess it's probably a skirmisher. Target? So oh, lo- did they throw those giant darts? Maybe. You know, there was dart throwers back then. But maybe I, that was more of an Eastern Rome. I don't know. But so there are 4,000 Lusitanian tribesmen and 700 horse, all right? So we're talking there like a total force of around 7,000, but the hardcore Roman soldiers were, were 2,600. Okay. This is what he faced. Four Roman field generals with full field armies. Oh, my God. A total of 120,000 infantry, 6,000 horse, 2,000 bowmen. Okay. So... So a small little group. Slightly outnumbered. A little bit. <laughs> the senior general against him was a guy named Quintus Caecilius Metellus Pius. Metellus. Yeah, we've talked about those dudes before. Yeah, the name comes back. Yep, he's part of the same clan. How could Sertorius possibly win? So he calls his soldiers together, Matteo, before battle has, has begun with any of these generals. And before them, he placed two horses. A weak horse... And a strong horse. Next to the strong horse, he placed a weak man. And next to the weak horse, he placed a strong man. Okay. And then he makes a signal. And upon the signal, the strong man grabs the weak horse's tail and tries to yank it off the horse. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And he pulled and pulled and pulled, and the the tail just doesn't come off the horse. The horse just didn't kick him? Yeah. I, I was surprised, too. But maybe he was very intimidating... Big, strong guy. And then uh, all, everybody starts cracking up, right? Everybody in Sertorius' army starts laughing. And then the weak man begins, Mateo. But he doesn't grab the tail. He starts plucking out the horse's hair in his tail one by one until the strong horse had no hairs left in his tail. That, my men, is how we will win. Not by violence, but through perseverance. 
which I'm assuming is going to be some nice old George Washington guerrilla tactics. You got it. How did you guess? Well, because there's 7,000 of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going guerrilla. That's exactly what he did. So the, his forces were known for moving quickly. They were lightly armored. They would disappear into the mountains, Mateo, and they could endure hardship that no Roman soldier could. They could endure hunger and thirst. And most importantly, Sertorius never let himself get pinned down by the slower moving Roman forces. He was like a gnat, constantly harassing them uh, on their flanks, uh, smash and grab, hit and run type uh, guerrilla warfare. Like Washington. Like Washington. And none of Sula's men, and by the way, it was also a little bit like Scipio Africanus's behavior when he was facing the Barcas in Hispania. Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, I guess I forgot. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been many episodes, but none of Sulla's men, none of his four field generals, had an answer for Sertorius. So what did they do? What did they do? They called in some bigger guns. Oh no! They sent Matteo for Pompey the Great. Pompey fought Sulla. I mean, uh, Sertorius. Yes. No way. Yes way. This is getting even better and better, no? Crazy because he knew his dad. Yep. Defeated and his dad. Against his dad, yeah. So Pompey is. So Pompey sent- wasn't great at this time yet. Uh, he, but he had the nickname the Great, and we're going to talk about it in his episode. I don't want to spoil it, but it was given to him by none other than Sulla. Okay. So Pompey is now marching from Rome with a mega army. Things are getting serious in Hispania. And at this point, Mateo, Sertorius had earned the nickname the New Hannibal by the tribesmen and the Romans that followed him because he also had one eye, right? I don't know if we mentioned that Hannibal had one eye in Scipio's episode, did we? No, we did not. Okay, sorry, listeners. Hannibal had one eye, and Sertorius also had one eye. But he was also called the new Hannibal because he was perceived to be equally talented in war. At this point, they're viewing him as more god than general because he had been defeating or let's say had failed to be defeated by a hundred and twenty thousand man four general force attack to wipe him out right and he seemed to always have the upper hand and at this point he was given a gift Mateo of a pure white fawn so that's like a what a baby deer or something mm-hmm. he trained this fawn like a pet and he started saying that the fawn allowed him to speak to the goddess Diana who was giving him intel on the enemy so he's completely playing up this idea of like his, like Scipio That's did, awesome. right? Real question though. Yeah. Do people like I've obviously seen this a bunch of fancy things, but can you ride a deer? Like you know how people would ride deers and like you know how Odin would ride a deer into battle. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, because then that no, would be awesome. It's a it's I think a deer's probably too tiny, but a stag, yeah, like a yeah. yeah. Like a stag with, with, with horns? Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking like, like Bambi. Road does into, yeah, no, you you can't that. ride Bambi into battle. No, but can you ride a stag? I, I, ride I, I have to. I don't know. Look it up. I imagine you could. I imagine you could. So, more and more people, Mateo, start defecting to Sertorius's cause because his cause appeared just and because he was making mincemeat of the Roman generals. Around this time, by the way, another Roman general defected to Sertorius's camp his name was Marcus Perpena. He came to Spain, Mateo, with 54 cohorts 
in 76 BC and he said, Sertorius, I'm with you, dude. At this point, by the way, Mateo, Sula is now dead. Sula died two years before. But the Sulan government was still in power. The Sulan senatorial optimate party still controlled Rome. Right. And what, what I find incredible about this is that Sertorius is playing the long game. He's not just thinking, Matteo, I need to win one battle. He established a Senate. He appointed 300 senators, right. all of whom were Romans. He created a school to educate the kids of the Spanish nobility in Latin and Greek. And he formed an elite bodyguard with the best Spanish troops. In other words, he wasn't trying to destroy the Roman system. He was like he was trying to strengthen the Roman system in Spain, but because he always thought of himself as Roman. And he always wanted to go home. He, he said, Mateo, he would rather be the poorest man in Rome than the wealthiest man in a foreign land. And he was fighting against Rome, not by choice. Sertoria said that? Yes. And that brings us, Matteo, now to the Battle of Loron. 76 BC, Pompey is now in Hispania. By the way, Pompey is only 30 years old. And he had been given a proconsul position in Spain. We know you don't get to be a proconsul until you're a consul. Right. And in the old days, you don't become a consul unless you're 50 years old. But Pompey was a pretty special guy, you know. He was a special guy. A talented guy. Super talented guy. And the old rules were... They were being bent. Yeah, they were being bent. And the fabric was fraying. So I think it's a sign of how desperate the Senate was to try to control Sertorius. Sertorius had turned himself into a real threat. And I love this. Sertorius called Pompey the young pup. And he called Metellus the old woman. <laughs> he just seemed like a funny guy. Yeah, he did completely. Completely a funny guy. Like a real man of the people. So at this point, Pompey, excuse me, Sertorius lays siege to the city of Loron, which is a city that had uh, refused to come over to the Sertorius' side. It was a city on the Iberian coast, and it supported Metellus and Pompey. Pompey approaches the city. He had a force of 30,000 men. And he thought that he had Sertorius. So imagine this, Matteo. You have city walls. You have Sertorius, who is besieging the city. And Pompey approaches. So he thought that he had Sertorius trapped between the city walls and his army. Not only that, but so Pompey, smelling victory, he sent a message, Matteo, to the people of Loran and said, hey guys, come up to the battlements, like climb up the city walls, right. pull up a seat, have some lunch, and you can watch me destroy Sertorius. Whereupon Sertorius heard this and he said, it was time for Sula's pupil to take an important lesson in generalship. Watch your back. Sertorius is occupying the high ground, Matteo, making his position more defensible, but more importantly, he left a reserve force behind, out of sight, unbeknownst to Pompey, of 6,000 troops. So, Sertorius starts harassing Pompey's foragers as they come close, right? Because an army is foraging to feed right. itself as, as it moves. Right. And what does Pompey do? He pulls back his foragers and he sends them further out to forage so they wouldn't be bothered. Right. What he did not know was is that there was a backup force sitting somewhere in the wings. 
Sertorius orders his reserve force to attack the foragers that at this point are very far away from the main army. The foragers start falling left and right. They freak out, they break, and they ran for camp. Pompey ordered more men out to protect them, and Sertorius's infantry came out of nowhere to attack them. Pompey is now trapped, Mateo, between two forces of Sertorius. And Pompey has a choice. I have superior troops, and I can march my superior troops out or and run the risk that I'm destroyed, or I can keep my forces concentrated and let my men that are out there be destroyed. And he marched out? No. He didn't march out. He kept his main force in camp, and he watched as 10,000 of his men were killed. Yeah, seems like a Pompey moved. And then he watched as Sertorius took the city. Sertorius let the people leave Mateo, and then he burned the city down. And he made the pup look kind of, look kind of like <laughs> he an look idiot. a complete idiot. And by the way, that Sertorius might have completely destroyed Pompey had Metellus not arrived shortly thereafter with his full army. Sertorius was victorious, but he retreated to live to fight another day. He's like the leader of the rebel alliance now. Completely. Those reminds me kind of like Stannis. You know Stannis from yeah. Game of Thrones? From Game of Thrones. Yeah. Except th- I think this guy has more joie de vivre and more charisma than Stannis. Oh, yeah. Stannis, Stannis is like a brick. But. Yeah, he was like a brick. But honorable. An honorable brick. Yeah. Ow. Ow. Yeah, yeah. So how are you feeling about this guy so far? Is it surprising you, no? He seems, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised I never really heard of him before. But he seems like a really cool guy. Like in, in this little... This pocket of history, there's so much going on that you usually hear things about Pompey or Crassus, Julius Caesar, obviously, uh, even like Scylla and Marius, but this guy's just completely left out, you know? It was like he was written out, written out of the history somehow. Yeah. By the way, you're not alone. I had never heard of him before. Never, ever. This has been sort of a joy to research. I couldn't believe that this guy existed. So, what do you think Pompey and Metellus do at this point? Well, they regroup. They ask for more reinforcements from Rome. <laughs> so, like, how many men do they need Even to take out this little this guy? guy? with some freaking right? natives. They placed a bounty on his head, Matteo, of 20,000 acres of land and 100 talents of silver. He's also, like, dancing with wolves, kind of. Oh, yeah. Because now he's fighting with the natives, basically. Oh, that's a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. What a great movie, by the way. Yeah. Or, like, uh, The Last Samurai. Or just like the last samurai. Yeah. So this bounty, Matteo, placed on Sertorius's head would be paid to any man who killed Sertorius. Plus, if they were exiles from Rome, they would be allowed to return to Rome. Which, by the way, I feel like this is so un-Roman, the whole bounty thing. Yeah, it didn't you know? seem like a Roman thing, but you know it was actually very present in Greek culture? Yes, it yeah. was? Yeah. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. The Greeks would place bounties on, on people's lives? Well, yeah, but also it wasn't like a big... It was just little city-states, so people would place some bounties, you know? I mean, I feel like the Romans were... Let's, let's have a slugfest. We're going to put armies in the field, and we're going to destroy you in kind of the old-fashioned, orthodox yeah, way. Yeah, but it's like they never respected him until the end. They were just like, you know what, frick this guy, just get someone to kill him. That was very sneaky. Yeah. I don't like it. So, me neither. And in the meantime, by the way, Pompey and Metellus decided, let's not fight direct battles with this guy in the meantime because because we're getting whooped. 
So they adopted your very favorite, Mateo. What kind of tactics do you absolutely hate? Uh, scorched earth? Gungtatort. Oh, stupid freaking boring tactics. <laughs> yes, they adopted Fabian tactics because they said the numbers in our favor. We have a crazy number of troops. Eventually, this guy's going to mess up. So Sertorius saw the numbers were against him, and he went back to his hit-and-run guerrilla tactics. No more siege warfare. He continued to fend off Pompey and Metellus. They met in other battles. But in the meantime, Mateo, there's trouble underneath the surface in Sertorius's camp. Remember this guy, Perpena? Yeah. The patrician? I do. He was increasingly jealous of Sertorius. Oh, no. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted the glory. Why are men like this? <laughs> I, don't mean it's the I, don't, I don't mean just men, but like, why are humans like this? Yeah. The race is so cursed. I do think it's more of a man thing, though. I do think... I mean, not that women can't be jealous. No, I think it's both. Okay, but it's women are less likely to resort to murder when they're jealous. Uh, can we say I that? I don't know if that's true. I mean... That's a crazy assumption. But if you... Size, it's uh, not fair. Hang on a second. If you look at the headlines in any given day, the people that are killing other people tend to be men. What about, what was that lady's name? Um, uh, uh, Justinian's wife? Theodora did not kill other people. She was as as manipulative and, and... As far as we know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. So this guy, Perpena Mateo, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted the glory and he wasn't alone. You know what was going on? What? Sertorius made this look so easy. That they were starting to think, like, oh, anybody could do this, so why couldn't it be me? Yeah, I could do this. How tough can it be to fend off a 120,000-man enemy? Classic idiots. Oh, my God. And, and not only that, we have the whole class thing going on here. Perpena is patrician. Sertorius was a pleb. So he's just, you know, he has better blood in his... He has more noble blood, so he's yeah. better. I don't want to take orders from any stinking pleb. So he starts conspiring, Mateo, against Sertorius. It's always why. Yeah. And Perpena starts massively mistreating Spanish tribes. Abusing them, stealing from them, Mateo, to make them lose support for Sertorius. That's good. And Sertorius was unaware. He did not know that this was happening. And finally, Mateo, Perpena invites Sertorius to a banquet. Oh. I know. I'm sorry. It's like, it's like, no, you know what it really reminds you of? What? Um, not, not Robert's Rebellion, but the second Rob, Rob Stark, and then the Red Wedding. Ah, yes. He was always going on his, he was also going on his rebellion. Yes. And then they had the freaking Red Wedding. You know what? You're right. There's a bit of, I mean, age different, but difference, but similar. You're right. So he gets invited to a banquet. And Sertorius was known, Mateo, for being, insisting on good decorum. Hey, guys, we're all soldiers. We live a very tough life. But when we sit down at the table, let's behave <laughs> like gentlemen. And Perpena, knowing this, deliberately made this banquet coarse and vulgar and language and behavior, and Sertorius hated it. In the middle of the banquet, he's sitting on a couch. He was facing everyone, because that's what you do in a banquet, and he was so disgusted, Mateo, by the behavior, he turned his back 
on Predpena, and the other rowdy members of the banquet who were conspiring against him, but he did not know. Perpenna gives the signal as soon as his back was turned, and he and his co-conspirators fell upon Sertorius with knives drawn, Mateo. And that, after six years of running Spain, well, remarkably, Sertorius was dead in 73 BC at the age of 53. And I'd like to read a little epitaph from Plutarch because I feel like Sertorius merits it. This is what Plutarch said about him in the life of Sertorius. If anybody's interested in reading the source material, it's short and incredible. This is what he said. The most warlike of generals and those who achieved most by a mixture of craft and ability have been one-eyed men. Philip, Antigonus, Hannibal, and the subject of this life, Sertorius, of whom one might say that he was more continent with women than Philip, more faithful to his friends than Antigonus, more merciful towards his enemies than Hannibal, and inferior to none of them in understanding, though in fortune to them all. Fortune he ever found harder to deal with than his open foes, and yet he made himself equal to the experience of Metellus, the daring of Pompey, the fortune of Sulla, and the power in Rome, though he was an exile and a stranger in command of barbarians. What do you say about that? I mean, he seemed like he was a special guy. If he was given the right tools, he probably could have done greater things. You get the sense, I, you're absolutely right, you get the sense that he could have done anything, this guy. Anything. So, if you go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, as we do now for all of our subjects, we've created an image in ChatGPT and Dali. Uh, on how we imagine Sertorius might have looked towards the end of this campaign. Mateo, what do you think? I mean, it's pretty accurate. It still looks like a beating guy, you know? Yeah. He's taken a beating, but he's, he is prepared to march out again against impossible odds. So, <sighs> deep breath. That's it for Sertorius. Quintus Sertorius. And it's time to rank him, Mateo. Let's start. How big, Matteo, would you consider to be Sertorius's military success? It's got to be pretty good, you know. I mean, he was able to not technically be beaten out on the field, and he was able to overcome some big odds using strategy, though he never really fully fulfilled his goal. So I'm going to give him like an eight. A uh, goal of what goal? Ah, you mean? I guess expand the enemy armies from Spain. I don't yeah. really know what his goal was, but he was never able to crush the opposition. Yeah, but he really didn't have the tools to do it. So he really didn't, and he proved himself to be an incredibly able commander with whatever he was given. Right, Lusitanian tribesmen, a few couple thousand Roman soldiers, some pirates. Right, like <laughs> the guy improvised, and he survived, and not only survived. But survived with, I don't know, it wasn't an accidental survival. Like right. he, he was able to fend off the military might of the entire Roman Empire, made Pompey the Great, who was called the Great at that point, look like a chump. Uh, he did incredible things. And if he had not been killed by one of his own lieutenants, 
who was a bitter patrician, who knows what could have happened. But so, all right, you're going to give him an eight. I, I think this might be the first time, Mateo, that I'm inclined to give him more uh, to, to, to grade higher than you. Okay, so what are you going to give him? Uh, you gave him an eight. I, I think I'm going to go to, okay, let me think about this for a second. He defeated Pompey's father. He defeated Pompey the Great himself. He defeated four Roman field generals and all of the men that Sulla could throw at him. I think he's high. If he had been given proper resources, where could this guy have gone? What could he have done? That's what I was thinking too, but I'm not reading his uh, military the, capacity or capabilities. I'm just reading his success. You're ma- okay. Okay. Fair enough. I think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a little bit higher because I feel that way. Um, I think he is one of the massive, most massively talented uh, generals that we've seen. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna go with the nine. Political, Matteo. How would you rate their political success? His political success. Excuse me. Not very high. I mean, it's not because. Well, actually, he was able to both times around win over the hearts of the Spaniards. Uh, he was called to Tangier to liberate them because they knew he was a, a like a great guy, I guess. Yeah. And he ruled Tangier nicely, so it seems like he the plebs loved him. You know, he got along no, no, the plebs, but he got along really well with the people. But the people in power did not like him at all, and it became his undoing. You're right. In some ways, he kind of offended both sides because of his kind of righteous attitude. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention, Mateo, uh, King Mithridates, you know, we've talked about him now for a couple episodes, he reached out to Sertorius when Sertorius was ruling Spain and said, dude, you are incredible. We should team up against the Romans together. And And Sertorius said, hey, buddy, I am a Roman, and I'm happy to help you reclaim any territory that is rightfully yours. Yeah. But you will, I will not help you take any Roman territory because I am for Rome. Uh, but you're right. I, I think to some extent this was his Achilles heel. His political success was, was, was low because he didn't play politics. So what do you rate him? If, if five is average, Mateo, where is he on the scale? If five is average... Probably a little below average, to be honest. Okay. Because, I don't know. He didn't play the game, you know? Yes, he did not play the game. At all. And if politics is about playing the game, and even Sula, to some extent, played the game, owned the game, redefined the game, and killed the people that didn't want to play his game, yeah. uh, Sertorius just said, no, you guys play your game. I'm leaving. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think he's like a four or something yeah, like that. Yeah, a four. Okay, we give him a four. Uh, coolness. Okay, for me, this guy is top marks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think he's like easy, an easy ten. He, he's an easy ten. Yeah. He awesome. maxes out. All right. That, we didn't need to discuss that one too much. Nope. And finally, and this is a tough one, Mateo. And it, it pains me a little bit because I know the answer to this is going to mean that he's not scoring extremely high on the list. But it's the reality of things. What was Sertorius's lasting impact on the world? Very low. We had never heard of him. We had never heard of him. He would, he would just be a blip in history, basically, sadly. Very sadly. He could have been much more, but 
fate did not allow him. By the way, Mateo, we called Marius a 10. I think if Marius and Sertorius met in battle, Sertor- it would have been, at the very least, an even match. In the well, same Militarily? Way. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm not... I'm just but that's about a what if. You're talking about reality. Okay, I'm fine. I'm just talking about... No, I'm not... Well, we're talking about his military success. We could yes. add another... Yes, you're right. Add another About p- for, capability? Yeah, right. but or prowess, but, okay. you know, I was just talking about success. Okay. All right, my son. So where are we now? We are now at impact. What is his impact? Give him a number. Okay, can I make an argument for a higher number than what you're thinking? Yeah. For six years, he had the entire Roman state running around in circles sending hundreds of thousands of men against him, her best generals, well-supplied, and nobody had a solution for Sertorius. His impact in Rome was massively huge for the period of time in which he lived. Yeah, but that's not what the, for the period of time, though. Okay. You know, on the, on the world. This is lasting impact in the world. Okay, fine, you're right. I mean, look, maybe I've said this before. We could try to reevaluate what we used to rape people. Because, by the way, I'm sure this guy, well, I, mean, I, 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 I give him my vote for hero candidacy, but, I mean, according to our, our rubric right here. We, we, need to, we may, need to be consistent. Yeah. And so the answer is low. Yep. We had never heard of him. Nope. And I imagine that there are few people listening to the podcast that had. By the way, if anybody listening to the podcast had known of Sertorius and has a feeling about Sertorius, an opinion, Please email us at info at lostromanheroes.com. Right, you let us know. We would love to hear from you, but unfortunately, I think we both sadly need to cast a vote here, which is going to be on the low side. If five is average, average implies you know something of the guy. I mean, I think it's... Slow. It's three. Low. Yeah. And three might be a little generous, but let's be generous. Let's give him a three. So, Mateo, that brings Sertorius to a total score of... 51, which is 64%. And that puts him in the rankings uh, in sort of towards the bottom, some between Camillus and Romulus, just above Romulus, which makes me happy. I wish he were ranked higher. Uh, his story is incredible, his life remarkable, and yet I think that's probably fair. And so that leaves us with, does he belong in the hall? He could he could have done much more than lesser men in better situations. So I'd say he's a hero. I agree with you, you entirely. Know, he was righteous. He didn't really care about all the power hunger and crap like that. He just wanted to chill out, you know. And, and he, he didn't betray his people, which a lot of people yes, were taking that off. He didn't betray his people. He truly cared about Rome. You get the sense that had fate dealt different cards, he and Sula could have been allies and friends. Mm. So, Sertorius, you're into the Hall of Heroes. You deserve to be there. And that is the life of Quintus Sertorius. And that brings us to our finale. Please do visit our website at www.lostromanheroes.com Uh... You'll see our list, the Hall of Heroes there. And you'll also see the list of every hero that we intend to cover. If you see someone there that you don't think belongs on our homepage, or if you see something that's missing, please do email us at info at lostromanheroes.com. Uh, 
as we do every week, would like to give a shout out to new countries that are now appearing on our list of listeners. And I would like to give a shout out to the country of Nepal. Mateo, we have listeners in Nepal. That's pretty crazy. Isn't that nuts? I would have never thought that. Me neither. Me neither. I was absolutely blown away by that. And uh, Mateo, we, we haven't done this for a little while, but I thought that maybe we could read a review. What do you think about that? Let's do it. All right. I'd like you to read the review. Uh, we just had a new one post. And bear with me one second. I'm so sorry. I'm pulling it up. And the review is here. Mateo, please read our latest review. All right. Do I say a name? Yeah, 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 definitely. From from Juan Cairo, five stars, says, Love this podcast. Beautiful storytelling done with wit and humor. I really enjoy the father and son banter. A great way to learn history of this period. Well, we appreciate your review a lot. Thank you very much, Juan Cairo. That's a fantastic review. And as we say every episode to our listeners, we love that you're listening. We are thrilled to see the growing number of downloads and how we're spreading around planet Earth. It kind of blows us away. But if you wouldn't mind, please taking five seconds of your time, just five seconds of your time to leave a little review. Wherever you listen to us, it helps us so very much. It's really awesome. A little review on iTunes or on Spotify makes a huge difference because it means that we our podcast gets placed higher in search results and it helps us get more listeners. So please, please, please leave us a review. It's incredible. And with that, Mateo, I think we can say so long, farewell. Thank you so very much for listening. And tune in next week. Uh, we have, we're, we're entering... You know, the Avengers Endgame, we're entering the Endgame, Mateo. This is, we're entering the end of times. And our next, you're going to love this, Mateo. Mm. Our next episode is on a fellow named Marcus Licinius Carassus. Never heard of that guy. Right? Yeah. (laughs) So, things are going to get even more interesting in the upcoming three or four episodes because the Republic is gasping how would you put it? Uh, it's on its last breaths. I think. Yeah, it is. On its last breaths. So let's see how the story of the Republic ends. And very soon thereafter, the birth of what would become the Empire. Mm-hmm.